What is an evangelical? And does that label even mean anything anymore? A couple weeks ago, I sat down with Mike Reeves, president and professor of theology at Union School of Theology, to dig into just that question. And today, I'm sitting down with him again so that he can answer some of your questions about the future of evangelicalism. Listeners from around the world, from Texas to Australia to Kuwait, sent in questions ranging from, does Mark Knoll's famous critique of evangelical anti-intellectualism still hold true? To, why does it seem like so many evangelicals are converting to Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy? Mike's new book is called Gospel People, A Call for Evangelical Integrity from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Mike, thank you for joining me again, very quickly, uh, on the Crossway Podcast. Great to be with you, Matt. Yeah, so a few weeks ago, we released an interview that you and I did related to the current state of evangelicalism, uh, and we, we dug into the use of that term today in our culture and around the world, and you know what a distinctly evangelical theological identity should actually look like, and, and a whole lot more. So if you haven't listened to that interview, I'd encourage people to go back and find that one, uh, but as we release that conversation and, and your new book, Gospel People, we quickly concluded that another interview would be worthwhile, this time answering questions that people from around the world have for you about uh, this discussion, this topic of what is evangelicalism, what does it really mean to call ourselves evangelicals, and, and what's the significance there. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to discuss some questions that people have submitted. Uh, so yeah, happy to do that with Excellent. you. Excellent. Look forward to it. So the first question I wanted to start with is from a listener in Montgomery, Alabama, and this person writes, what would be lost if we dropped the term evangelical, despite its historical roots and the value of its convictions when properly understood? Is retaining the label actually worth the battle? And then he goes on, do we not have more to gain and less to lose by dropping the term for self-identification? Mm. How would you respond to that? I don't primarily want to fight for the label. I want to fight for being people of the gospel. But that said, names do matter. And so how we're defined and how we're labelled has implications. And we need to be judicious in how we speak of ourselves. And so in certain contexts, I know that misunderstandings will be so acute that you don't want to put the evangelical label out front and, front and centre. You may want to work towards it. You may think, well, let's just judge this by the context. Mm. But my sense is that we could too quickly abandon the fight for the label because it's difficult, people misunderstand it, and so we simply back off. But what will happen is we need to have some self-descriptor. And if we abandon this one with all its historical pedigree and its simplicity, that it's simply saying we are gospel people, if we abandon that, then we need to pick some new label. And there are two potential problems with that. One is... By picking a new label, that could wear thin or be misunderstood just as quickly. Right, And right. if we're constantly rebranding ourselves every 10 years, the thought that we're not just sectarian, that we're representing historic, creedal, confessional, Catholic Christianity, just becomes laughable. And also, if we are going to pick a new label for ourselves, 
The danger is if it's not gospel defined, however good it might sound from a quick brainstorm as we get together and think, what should our new label be? Very quickly, unintended consequences could be seen and we're driven by something that's not the gospel. So the labels do matter. We need to be yeah. careful, but not to blithely abandon a label that's been so historically useful. Maybe as an aside, uh, what do you make of, it feels like a distinctly evangelical thing actually to oftentimes sort of say, I don't like labels. Like, why do we need labels? Why don't we just get rid of them and just be, you know, people who love Jesus? You know, you know so like, what do you, what do you make of that maybe general suspicion of labels as a concept? Yes, I understand it. And evangelicals are really wanted to say we're mere Christians. Mm. We're not to be defined by some other thing than the heart of Christianity, and therefore can't we just be called Christians? But the thing is, people are going to use labels of us somehow, and there are many different stripes and tradition of Christian, and people are going to apply a label to you, and you're going to be defined somehow. So make your definition the gospel. Mm, yeah. Uh, maybe a related question that a listener from Christchurch, New Zealand sent in. To what extent is the term evangelical used outside of the U.S.? And what impact should that have on whether or not we continue to use it or maybe find something new? The term evangelical is used a lot outside the U.S. and will normally have slightly different connotations to what it has in the U.S. So, Outside of the US, it is very rare for evangelical to have any of the political, cultural connotations that Americans expect the label has. It simply just doesn't have those kind of labels in most places. Mm, wow. But the fact that it is used differently in different places around the world, again, suggests we need to be careful with how it's perceived but not primarily be driven by that. To recognise there may be some misunderstandings we need to be careful to avoid, but we don't want to be driven by people's perceptions, but be driven by the gospel. And so if we can work towards a clarity in people's minds, whatever we call ourselves, that we are people of the gospel, that's where we want to be. So that yeah, we can yeah. embody that and people can see that's what we're standing for. Hmm. Another question from a listener in Kuwait. Uh, this person writes, I've heard it said that the gospel is like a bird that has flown south and east to other branches. In your opinion, is the future of Western evangelicalism dim or is it bright? Hmm. Well, Western evangelicalism is going to be impacting the global church for centuries because of the wealth of resources that it's had for the last few hundred years. I'm thinking primarily um, not of finances, but I'm thinking of education and books. Mm. And so that wealth of deep Christian study that's being put into books is going to be blessing the world for hundreds of years. And that's a wonderful thing. But where Western evangelicalism itself will be in 100 years or 200 years really depends on the integrity of those who will call themselves gospel people. And by integrity, I'm not just talking about orthodoxy. 
because it's possible to have an orthodoxy that's only skin deep, to affirm on paper, but deny in the heart, deny in practice. Integrity requires that the truths we formally confess are embraced such they affect and change us. Integrity, this is what we need. Gospel integrity is where the head and the heart are aligned. That's what we need. So we need to confess the faith of the gospel, but more than confess it, we need to have the gospel affect us so that we are changed and stamped and altered, transformed by the renewing of our minds in the light of this gospel. So, so would you go so far as to say that uh, Western evangelicalism is currently experiencing a, a kind of crisis of integrity? You know, that we, do, we do have the doctrinal, on-paper orthodoxy sort of largely in place, but that it is only skin deep, largely? Yes, I, I think that's exactly the issue. I, I think the greatest challenge facing the church today is not better leadership, even orthodoxy, or training, or church planting. I think it's integrity. And not moral integrity, but gospel inter integrity being shaped by the gospel. That's the greatest need underneath every other valid need. Mm. So we've mentioned just the, the baggage that can sometimes be attached to this label of evangelical, especially in the U.S. Uh, a listener from Melbourne, Australia, writes, The last couple of years have widened the political and cultural divides in our society, including within evangelicalism. What are the key dangers on both sides, left and right, liberal, conservative, that threaten evangelicalism today? And how do we, who call ourselves evangelical, avoid uh, sitting in an echo chamber on either side of that divide? Mm. We're all aware, I think, of the different cultural and political challenges that are facing us. But the way that they are dangers to evangelicalism, dangers to a gospel faith, is that they could cause us to add to or subtract from the gospel. In that, and this is maybe a particularly conservative danger, we could add a political or cultural issue to our proclamation of the gospel. And maybe more the liberal danger is that the cultural political pressures around us cause us to subtract something from the gospel to make it more palatable to the culture. And those seem to be the greatest dangers. And this is why in the book Gospel People, I finished it with a little self-diagnostic chart to try to get people to say, you may say, yes, yes, and amen. I'm an evangelical through and through. I believe these things. But I wanted to press on it a little bit to say, yes, but if you're a pastor, say, and you're regularly teaching your people, when, time, when in the last three years did you unfold all these truths? Are these truths assumed in your church, in your, in, in your circles, or are they taught clearly? So we can assume that we have an evangelical gospel faithfulness, but actually be lopsided in it unless we do that sort of self-diagnostic test on ourselves. And to, to that 
second part of the question about how we can avoid sitting in an echo chamber, the answer is really the supremacy of Scripture, hmm. that we cannot simply hold to saying we are people who believe in the authority and reliability of Scripture. We need to say we are people who believe in and live by the supreme authority of Scripture. And therefore, when we're faced with one of these challenges, we're asking first and foremost, what does Scripture say? And we're not accommodating what Scripture says or balancing it with, with wisdom from elsewhere. We want wisdom from elsewhere, but Scripture and what God's Word says is going to overrule everything and not be hijacked by any other message. So the supremacy of scriptures is the key. But I'd add one other thing as well, that if evangelicalism is historic, mere, creedal, Catholic Christianity, then it is a good thing for evangelicals to read old books as well as new books to ensure that you're reading and finding yourself in unity with the church down through the centuries as well as the church today. So read Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Augustine, and you will find things that they're saying, some you may disagree with and think, I'm not sure that is scriptural. And there are certainly things that you'll, you'll read in Augustine, you go, no, that's not scriptural. But they will also challenge ways in which you're not scriptural, mm. but you don't see because you're bathing in this culture and you've not seen how you've accommodated yourself to it. They're in a different culture and coming from a different place. And so to read Christians of past centuries helps us see where we might be in danger of adding to or subtracting from the gospel. Two yeah. heads are better than one. Right, right. That's so good to, to look to history as that resource. I think something I've heard from pastors on kind of... Uh, all sides of some of these debates that we have, perhaps these are you know orthodox, um, Bible-loving pastors. It's just that the line though between uh, just clearly proclaiming what Scripture teaches and letting that set the agenda, so to speak, for their teaching, and then the application of that teaching in say the political realm or the social realm. That's where the rub kind of gets a little bit hard, and it's, right. it's not always clear how to make those applications. So, mm. you know, another listener uh, from Hawaii sends in, how open should pastors and church leaders be with their political views, with the application maybe of these principles to actual policy, uh, not just from the pulpit, but in their day-to-day -day discussions with their people? What would you say to that? The prime question to ask yourself is, is it the gospel? that if a pastor speaks the gospel and his political views with the same emphasis, then people are going to hear them together. And a pastor is a person in a position of authority, and he should have authority in proclaiming the gospel, but people can hear that authority in areas where he doesn't rightfully have an authority. In other words, to guide people in every part of their political view. And so he needs to recognise that he will have political views, which he might think, rightly or wrongly, can be theologically argued for. But if those political views are views in which evangelical Christians do disagree on, 
people who believe in the gospel can hold different positions, then he needs to be much gentler and more cautious in how he presents those political views and say, this is not something at the same level of the gospel. This is an issue on which Christians disagree. I'll argue through my position, but don't hear my view on taxes as having the same weight of authority as when I preach Christ crucified. Mm. They are not. So, so you would say there is a, it could be in certain situations or contexts permissible for a pastor to express those views, but it would just be important for him to distinguish that from the gospel proper. Yes, it, it's like presenting different theological views, not just political ones, that it's right to, uh, to go through Albert Moeller's theological triage and say, is this a first level issue? I can simply proclaim that. This, this is gospel truth that I can herald. Is this a second level issue, whether it be political or theological? This is an issue where, where good gospel Christians will disagree. And I can think they're profoundly wrong over there on their view of baptism or spiritual gifts or church polity. But while we can have disagreements, they are brothers and sisters in the gospel. And there are other issues that are less consequential than that too. So we need to be able to present things and, and let people see where do they rank in the order of importance of truths. Mm. Yeah, all of that requires so much nuance and care, uh, something that seems often very lacking in our conversations today. Absolutely. And, and to be evangelical is very much to walk the path of discernment and wisdom. Mm. And that's something that's too easily ignored by people who simply want to throw out their views. Yeah. It's right to be able to say, we can acknowledge there are some truths we will not give up on. There are hills we will die on. And there are other truths over which Christians can rightly disagree. Another question from a listener in Plainview, Texas. Uh, in the early days of the neo evangelical movement, figures like Billy Graham and Carl Henry unified evangelicals. Do you feel unification among evangelicals by a statesman-like figure is possible or even desirable today? And if so, what would it take for this person to to rise to prominence and have that effect? Yes, God has raised up um, through the centuries um, statesman-like leaders um, who have singularly blessed the church and brought the church together. But hope for unity is not to be found in anyone other than Christ. The gospel is the cause of unity. And so our great prayer should not be so much, Lord, raise up a man who can be the hope for our unity, but Lord, make our churches gospel churches, because it's when the Son of Man is lifted up that he will draw people together to himself. It is the gospel that is the cause of unity. And in fact, there is a danger in having even a great mature statesman-like figure that they all have their quirks. They're all sinners. Mm, yeah. And so our danger can be that we're 
we find ourselves unable to detect what is a good and faithful gospel emphasis and what is the quirk of that man because we so admire him for where yeah. he is faithful and it becomes hard to detect for us. But that gives us the answer to what that man will have if God does raise up such a man, he must have beyond everything else, not just ability and gift, he must have integrity to the gospel. He must be a man who has convictions of the gospel and a heart and mind and character and life shaped by the gospel. Maybe a related question. Uh, a listener from Kentucky asks, uh, what do you see as the main benefits and the role of formal partnerships and coalitions and organizations when it comes to, you know, protecting and giving an identity to evangelicalism? Well, partnerships and coalitions have always been an important feature of of evangelicalism down through the centuries. You, you see beautifully churches, organizations, individual evangelical Christians down through the centuries cooperating with each other, partnering with each other across continents. Uh, it's one reason I love deliberately being transatlantic in my ministry, because I've seen how men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield together when they worked. That was an evangelical partnership together. What good came out of those men working together? Those partnerships and coalitions, they're so important because they express unity in the gospel and they build unity in the gospel. Hmm. As, let's say, a Presbyterian church in Scotland partners with a Baptist church in Rwanda, they can see, here's the gospel that we share. We don't actually share an ecclesiology and that's okay. We will still give money to their missionary efforts, to their church growth projects, because we're about the same gospel. And so that partnership enables us to distinguish between first level gospel issues and some second level, important, but second level ecclesiological issues. Hmm. And it's so, so helpful, too, to hear that, that nuance that these partnerships, these coalitions can uh, help to express and even encourage unity around the gospel, but they aren't establishing that unity. The unity comes from the gospel itself. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Mm. Maybe uh, taking a broader step back here, uh, Mark Knoll is famous for uh, many things, but one of them is his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And one listener from Sheridan, Wyoming asks, is his criticism of evangelicalism in that book still valid? And if so, uh, how so? How could it be corrected? And if it's not valid anymore, uh, what happened to, 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 to address that issue that he saw? Mm. And maybe you could, before answering, just briefly summarize for our listeners what Noel was arguing in that book. Well, he, he said it very simply as he opened the book. He said, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. So brilliantly, <laughs> in a nutshell, there, there's, there's, the, there's your book. Um, and that problem is definitely with us still today, some 30 years after he wrote the book, um, that evangelicalism far too often still, even 30 years later, is known for its anti-intellectualism. And the problem here is that you see intelligent young evangelicals leaving evangelicalism because they find more intellectually stimulating fare elsewhere. 
And that's a tragedy because the evangelical faith is intellectually stimulating if people could be given its riches. Mm. How can it be corrected? Well, that's not an easy question to answer, um, especially in a very few short minutes. <laughs> I think at the root of it, underneath everything, is pride. The anti-intellectualism actually comes from pride. Which is kind of counterintuitive, probably. It, it I, is. I don't... It, it's very counterintuitive. And, and so evangelicalism is often mocked for being superficial. But we like the gospel and the things of scripture being simple because it makes our expertise and our comfort more possible. That we're in charge, we're masters of the text, we're masters of what we know. And so evangelical culture can then become simultaneously smug and superficial. Mm -hmm. And we can bathe in the comfort of a knowledge that never drives us to our knees. But the gospel that is found in scripture that is to define people of the gospel is the gospel of the glory of God. And the glory of God has always been the guiding light for the reformation of the church. And the glory of God is what exposes us for who we are so that we realise we are not the wonderful little things we thought we were. We are mere creatures and wretched sinners and the glory of God simultaneously as well as exposing us and so humbling us enlightens us to know how marvelous and majestic and beautiful and glorious God is and so the glory of God weans us off our own proud self-reliance and makes us tremble in wonder at who God is, and so gives us a taste and a thirst to know God better. The glory of God is what will give us the desire to press into Scripture, to press in to know God better. So I'd suggest that it's a better, clearer heralding of the beautiful glory of God is what will overcome our self-satisfied, smug anti-intellectualism and cause us to long to know an infinitely beautiful and desirable God better. Mm. That's such an interesting answer to that question that I'm sure is is new. It's causing me to think differently probably about uh, the problem that we see there that Noel was so helpfully highlighting all those years ago. Maybe a related question. You mentioned that because of this anti-intellectualism and, and other issues, at times people have left evangelicalism kind of, you know, sometimes very publicly you know, for other Christian traditions that uh, seem to be maybe more rooted or more intellectual than what they found uh, among the evangelicals. And one listener in Grand Rapids, Michigan asks, uh, have you noticed the, the number of conversions of evangelical Protestants to Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy? Is there something in our ecclesiology or our sacramentology in either doctrine or practice that we need to change to uh, prevent this from happening in the future? Yes, th th there is a small but steady trickle of converts from evangelicalism to Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. And I've made a point of trying to read um, the 
the testimonies, the books, the accounts of those conversion stories to try oh, to understand what's going on. And I've noticed that there are a number of common threads. Um, too many to mention now, so I'll just mention two. One is that historicity and richness that um, evangelicalism is perceived to be rootless and people want historical roots. And so we need to show the historical rootedness of our beliefs. And that's why that's something I tried to do in the book Gospel People, to show a little bit how these are not recent beliefs that classic evangelical beliefs you can see being unfolded and taught in the second, third, fourth, fifth centuries. Mm. But another key draw out of evangelicalism has been the aesthetics. And I think this has been the the sense that in evangelicalism, you know, meeting in gymnasia and the, the feeling of everydayism, you, you can walk into an Eastern Orthodox church or a Roman Catholic church or go to Rome and you're just hit by this apparently transcendental experience. Mm, um, it just yeah. feels more immediately sacred and beautiful. And this was a challenge that the reformers hit. And one answer to it was to be anti-physical, to say the physical things like architecture and painting and beauty just aren't so important. That never really seemed to achieve an awful lot. The argument that John Calvin really pushed in on that seemed to be much more effective, and I think this is the way to go, is not to denigrate architecture or art, but rather to say, let people see the spiritual beauty of the gospel, the beauty and glory of God, to see that that eclipses even the greatest physical beauty of architectural religious trappings. And there's an exciting challenge for the church today, not to present a boiled down message, which is what you can hear in evangelicalism too much, uh, not present a boiled down message spruced up with a bit of better church architecture, more sensuous worship, rather herald the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, such that divine glory evidences itself as more beautiful, more satisfying than anything else. And there's a challenge for the preacher mm. to go, do, do you know that divine glory to be more beautiful than um, Michelangelo's Last Judgment or some, some great works of Catholic art? You must show your people the superior glory of the spiritual truth of the gospel. Mm, yeah. So maybe another question that kind of gets at some of the application of this. Uh, a listener in Nairobi, Kenya, uh, acknowledges the, the, the subjectivity that we see in our culture so often now. Mm. There's, there's uh, sometimes uh, this notion of your truth and my truth. And so this person asks, how do we hold fast to the gospel and even proclaim the gospel that you're saying is so central to our identity in a context like that where objectivity is often not even assumed? Mm. The reality is that truth, goodness, and beauty work together. And when truth is not valued, it can still be heralded. 
And we can do that by both explaining and embodying the superior coherence and goodness and beauty of the gospel. Hmm. And so even when truth itself is not being valued, to let people hear and work through as well as see and taste the coherence of the biblical worldview of the gospel and its goodness and its beauty. And to, to help guide us in that, we need to remember that we're not trying to win people to an argument. We're trying to draw them to love the glory of God. Mm. So we're not retreating from the truth of the gospel to say we want people to see the beauty and the goodness of God. But as we talk about that, we're actually describing the shape of the truth of who God is. Another kind of related question uh, from someone in Bakersfield, California. I've read your book, Gospel People. Uh, and just a side note, you can pick that up today from CrossFit.org or from Amazon. It's, it's now available. Uh, and I'm convinced by the argument to hold fast to the term evangelical and all that it means. However, I came away wondering what the application is for me. What suggestions beyond being people of integrity do you have for how individual Americans, in this case, can salvage that term and reclaim the label? I'd want to say to that, if I heard right in the question, it said, beyond being people of integrity. Mm. I'd want to say to that, friend, integrity is not a small application. It is the all-encompassing application. For all the troubles of evangelicalism are summed up in our lack of integrity. So that's not a small application. Yeah. That to be people of gospel integrity means we'll be people of the supremacy of scripture, not people of the commandments of men. Therefore, we won't divide into tribes which are dictated by the cultures and traditions of men. To be people of the gospel means we're people of redemption. We are a redeemed people. We're not a people of proud self-reliance, which means we have a culture of grief for sin, joy in God. Uh, we have a church which is a place of welcome where there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're a people of regeneration, concerned for our hearts, not just for superficial, superficial orthodoxy or superficial activity. We're concerned for our hearts, and that's a lifelong pursuit of orthocardia. And I felt this so much that uh, actually the moment I finished writing the last word of Gospel People, I wrote to Justin Taylor and said, I think we need a new book on this in order <laughs> to spell out the applications of this. So so, so I've got a, a second book trying to do exactly that called Evangelical Pharisees, the mm. Gospel as the Cure for the Church's Hypocrisy. What a title. <laughs> and I felt, so thank you, questioner, I felt, exactly as you do, I think we need to press into this more to see what does integrity mean? That is the whole issue, but what does it mean? So mm. I, I wanted to spend more time on exactly that. Yeah, we'll be looking for that book uh, coming out uh, in the future here uh, from Crossway and super excited to 
to have you explore that a little bit more for us. Uh, maybe a final question, this one from me. I know this November, you and some others you're working with are planning a conference to discuss just this topic, how the gospel functions as the center of a distinctly evangelical identity and what it looks like to be faithful to the gospel. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what you're hoping for this conference. Absolutely. So the conference will be, there'll be a, a few of us. So Dane Ortland, uh, myself, Phil Riker, and a number of others are getting together to look at how the gospel is our hope and our uniting banner. And so how we can be people united by, gelled together by, impelled by the gospel. And um, that's going to be in Atlanta, November the uh, 11th, 12th. Um, if people want to find out more, we'd love to have them along to explore some more with us. You can go to reffellowship.org. That's R-E-F fellowship.org. And you can find out more. We'd love to see you there. Mm, thank you so much, Mike. And thank you for writing this book, Gospel People, and for coming on the show again uh, to answer these questions from our listeners. We appreciate Always it. Always great to be with you, Matt. Thank you. That was Mike Reeves answering your questions about evangelicalism. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Gospel People, A Call for Evangelical Integrity. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, would you leave us a rating and a review? That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.